First, though, we're talking about the weather. And as you've also been hearing on the news, many residents in different parts of B.C. are bracing for more rain, possible flooding as that storm starts hitting parts of the province. In the Fraser Valley, which we know is still recovering from the catastrophic flooding in November, it is expected there will be a significant amount of rainfall. So let's bring on Henry Braun. He is the mayor of Abbotsford and is on the line with us now. Mayor Braun, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, good good to be with you, Jill. How concerned are you about this atmospheric river, the rainfall that's expected? Well, given what we know at the present time, if we only get 50 to 90 millimeters of rain, I'm not overly concerned. But there's a lot of moving parts to this. We are closely monitoring the modeling that uh, Whatcom County is doing on the Nooksack. That is a big concern. Uh, But at this point, uh, the U.S. officials tell us that the Nooksack overtopping its butt dikes is not an issue. But that could change in 24 hours. But right now, we are as prepared as we can be for the forecasted atmospheric river. And how are things going then as far as the recovery and rebuilding since those floods in November? Well, we're putting together our recovery plan, which uh, the province uh, has to sign off on um, because there's 80% uh, or 80 cent dollars involved. Um, That's probably going to take another six weeks, but that doesn't mean that there's not recovery work taking place. But we're still in the response mode too. We have 16 landslides that we are monitoring very closely and uh, and we'll continue to do that. I am concerned about Claiborne Village. Uh, the sandbags are still in place there uh, from the first uh, flood, but uh, there's a lot of snow melt uh, that wasn't uh, on Sumas Mountain that wasn't there in November. Uh, and, and with the precipitation coming, uh, that is a concern. There's going to be localized flooding in both um, Matsqui Prairie and Sumas Prairie, we just don't know to what degree because we don't have enough data yet. Hmm. And, and when you talk about the that area with the sandbags, what about as well? Is that the same area as the, the Barristown pump station, which we all know so much more about now than uh, we did before? The Matsqui Prairie is on the Fraser River side. The Barrowtown is, of course, Sumas, uh, Sumas Prairie. The dikes, we raised the dikes a half a meter from uh, Barrowtown uh, along the dike going about six or seven kilometers west. So there's much more capacity. Uh, the dikes are higher. But, but that only comes into play if the Nooksack comes across the border. We don't see that happening right now. Now, if we had the amount of rain that's being forecast for Metro Vancouver, 150 and on the North Shore, I think 200 millimeters I saw, then I would be very concerned uh, because then all sorts of other things are going to happen on the U.S. uh, side, especially Mount Baker with the freezing level going up to 2,000 plus meters. That's a concern. But we don't we don't know that yet. Uh, Nooks or Nooksack Everson, the mayor of Everson, told me uh, he would have better modeling this afternoon. I talked to him. Yes, I talked to I talked to him yesterday, but I'll be talking to him today, and I'm communicating with the mayor, the new mayor of Sumas as well. So, all right. And and how are things going as far as that communication in that area, as well as on both sides of the border? Uh, well, I think right now very good. Uh, the mayor of Everson asked me on behalf of the two uh, uh, House of Representatives for Whatcom County uh, to sit on a uh, committee, um, which I said I'd be happy to um, 
to uh, join and to give my two bits worth on what's happening on this side of the border. Uh, but we need to get together uh, both as Americans and Canadians to sort this out. We can't keep doing this. Um, the Nooksack has flowed across our border many times. Uh, the last time before November was 2020, February 2020. And, uh, and I can see that happening again this year, which is why we're not removing sandbags. Uh, uh, we're stockpiling them in certain areas so that we're ready to go if that happens. But right now, we don't see any of that happening. There, having said that, though, there will be localized flooding because what's different this time than it was in November is that the ground is frozen. And we have snow on the ground with a with a, a layer of ice. So whatever precipitation comes is going to move very quickly uh, to the lowest point in the prairie, and there are many of them. So there, in some fields, I'm sure there'll be a foot of water. Hmm, which isn't uh, is not what uh, people want to hear. I'm sure, especially those still uh, trying to recover from November. Right. No, and I, I, my heart goes out to them. But if you're a, a homeowner that is in a low area. Uh, you might want to think about uh, putting some sandbags uh, around uh, uh, your home because the water isn't going to be high. But having said that, if it comes across the border, that's a whole different ballgame. Right. So are you concerned then, Is it does it really come down then to how much rain we're expecting? I understand from Environment Canada, uh, some good news is that what was supposed to be a, a three to four day event with this heavy rainfall, it's now going to be two days, uh, Tuesday afternoon through Thursday. I mean, I guess that's not great news if we still get the same amount of rain in that, in that amount of time. But it does seem like it might not be as bad as we were anticipating. Yes, I, and I agree with that. And And we have seen... I mean, we have on the west coast uh, from Baja to uh, up a little further north in B.C., 40 atmospheric rivers a year. We used to call them pineapple expresses from the 60s onward. Uh, This is a relatively new term. The Americans are way ahead of us. They've actually got a rating system for atmospheric rivers. You know, category one and two are not big problems. Uh, Four and five, that's a different animal. And uh, so we probably need to get on board uh, with doing a little better modeling of that as well. The length of the atmospheric river, the width, does it stall, doesn't it stall? Those all factor in, uh, come into play here. But uh, what's forecast now is not an unusual amount of rain forecast for Abbotsford. Our diking and drainage system in Sumas Prairie can handle that. You mentioned uh, people may be preparing for this or may want to get sandbags in some areas. So if they do see that foot of water, anything else or what else are you asking residents or should residents be aware of getting ready for this? Well, to be very vigilant and to watch the surroundings uh, because they know better than anybody else what's happening on their particular property. Uh, the dairy farmers in particular will be well-versed in this. They they will know exactly if there's an issue coming or not. But the, the Sumas Prairie is not a tabletop prairie. There is all sorts of variations in there, and, and some farmers, as hard as this is to believe for some people, uh, they never were flooded out because they happened to be on a, on a much higher piece of ground in Sumas Prairie. But if you're in a low area, and, and people will know that uh, from previous uh, rain events, uh, and if the water drains towards your house, then you might want to look at how do you cut that off. All right. Mayor Braun, we'll leave it there as we brace for another heavy rainfall. But thank you so much for being available and for talking with us today. Happy to talk about this anytime.
Thanks so much for being with us. We've been talking a lot about what is happening in Quebec. Earlier today, Quebec Premier Francois Legault announced that that province is going to impose a health tax on Quebecers who refuse to be vaccinated against COVID-19. He went on to say that as the number of pandemic-related hospitalizations continues to climb, a health contribution will be charged to all adults that don't want to get vaccinated. He was asked about this and he said it wasn't fair that only 10% of the population in Quebec is unvaccinated but they make up for 50% of patients in intensive care beds. So this is something we've not seen in this country before. What are the reactions to it? Let's bring in Carrie Bowman, professor in bioethics and global health at the University of Toronto. Thanks so much for being with us. Happy to do so. What's your first response or reaction when you hear about what Quebec is doing? Yeah, I was really, really very surprised that they would push it to to this extreme. Um, I actually think it's going to be quite divisive. I, I, I think it may embolden the unvaccinated. It may make them more angry. It may lead to somewhat more vaccines, vaccine uptake. But look, here's a big problem I have with it. Unless I'm missing something, the timeline What I mean by that is the unvaccinated are unvaccinated. And we are told with Omicron that we all need three, one, two, three vaccines uh, for, you know, to to really have some any kind of significant and substantial immunity to Omicron. So if you look at the timeline, they haven't had one yet. So the timeline and I, I haven't had time to look up the interval, but I'm remembering it's between three vaccines. It's six months plus plus if I remember correctly. So six months plus plus from now, this Omicron wave is likely not even going to be here, um, which is good news. But so I question whether it's going to be really effective or not. And, you know, the beginnings of making judgments, we're absolutely in a crisis. And I, I, I totally appreciate that. And, you know, something of this nature could be justified if the vaccines really, really were bulletproof and, you know, one vaccine and you're not going to get anyone sick and you're not going to get sick yourself, but that's actually not the case. Um, so it would be wonderful if people got vaccinated and the remainders got vaccinated, but I'm not convinced this is justifiable even in these awful circumstances. Does it also kind of go against what healthcare in Canada has been like? And certainly, I know people have been making the comparisons of other health issues where people will end up in hospital, uh, say things like smoking or alcohol, where, where there's a tax at the point of sale. It's not a tax once you go into the hospital, if you go into the hospital because that lifestyle or that choice has, mm-hmm. has landed you there. But does it go against kind of what our healthcare system is to say you're going to be taxed if you don't get vaccinated? Yeah, you know, I think it does, but we are in a crisis. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I've spent a lot of my working life you know, <laughs> teaching and educating on these things. We do not make judgments about our patients' behaviors at all. You know, how many glasses of wine did you have with dinner last night? How many did I have? Who smokes? Who doesn't? Who's got extra weight? We don't. I mean, those are all absolutely health factors, and we can talk to people and point out the importance of, of these kind of interventions, but you don't make judgments about people and curtail health care. I do think it goes against the fabric of Canadian health care. I would say in an emergency it could be justified, but, uh, you know, not under these parameters. Three doses is a long way off. And look, all indications are three doses with Omicron is, is you know, really something positive. 
But, you know, the data on the specifics of that is still really emerging. And I think if these things were challenged in courts, I don't know how they'd hold up. Um, you know, C- Quebec thinks for itself. I admire that. I'm actually from Quebec originally. I, I admire their independence. I always have. I grew up with it. Uh, but I'm not convinced the rest of the provinces and territories are going to follow suit on this. But I could be wrong. <laughs> right, because you can, <laughs> on the one hand, you can admire Quebec's independence yeah. and Quebec doing this, but also acknowledge that Quebec is still part of Canada. It absolutely is. And it does. I, I, to answer your question very directly, I don't think it fits well with who we are as a nation. I don't think it fits well with the Canada Health Act. And I speak of the ethics that underpin the Canada Health Act, not just the mechanics of it. I don't think it's a good fit. Having said that, we're in an awful situation and, you know, we need to do whatever we can, but it has to be effective and it has to be justifiable. And I don't think this one is. And you kind of touched on this, but is it different in that, like you say, we are talking about a crisis, we're talking about a a global pandemic, which is different than if we're talking about obesity, if we're talking about somebody who has a a crash on a bike and isn't wearing a helmet. Those, I mean, if for no other reason, those aren't infectious diseases. By by doing those things, you're not putting somebody else at risk of, of getting the same thing. So does that help justify it in that we are in a global pandemic? It would. You know, ethics is so much proportional that the ethics depends. You know, good, good ethics is really built on good science. But look, I don't think the good science is there because you've got it's only a first dose for now. Um, it's not three doses. And, you know, it, there's not definitive evidence. If this was if there was a firewall and we absolutely had to do this to protect everybody and, and we had clear evidence that it was going to work, then I think it probably would. But I don't think it does in this case. I don't think it meets that threshold. You know, that, that's how I see it. You know, it, it's such an early story. I haven't even heard about how other people see it because it's a story just broke a few hours ago, as, as, as I understand it. Exactly. And I guess, too, you mentioned, too, the timing, you're right. It doesn't make sense. Even if everybody, the 10% in Quebec, heard this today and said, oh, okay, absolutely, I'll go get my first shot right now. You're right. The, the, the point to where they're protected the timeline is, doesn't work. Is no, it doesn't. Yeah. And look, the greatest, you know, we have a crisis right now, but the greatest threat to all of us as Canadians that we are absolutely ignoring is the global pandemic. And as a nation, we have done next to nothing about that. You know, where did Omicron come from? Where did Delta come from? They're going to keep coming. We're all going to have this great lesson in the Greek alphabet with in all this horror if we don't deal with the bigger problem. And, you know, we're still continuing to all our interventions are inward looking and none are outward looking. What do you mean? What would be different then or what would look different if we were outward looking? Well, we would we would start trying to get vaccines out to lower income countries and help with global health interventions in lower income countries. Uh, There's places in the world that have had virtually none. And remembering that, you know, large pools of unvaccinated people are just factories for more variants to emerge. And, you know, global interactions being what they are, those variants will continue to hit Canada. Do you so think, it's both ethical and epidemiological. Right. And, and that does make sense. And you're right. There hasn't been a ton of focus. In fact, I mean, we certainly know that there are many countries where the vaccine's just not there and, and it's not happening. But we do focus more on what's happening at home. Is that perhaps what this is looking at, too? And like you say, the timeline doesn't work for Omicron. But is it kind of letting acknowledging there are going to be more and more variants and this is going to maybe work for one of those? 
Well, it could, and in which case my arguments kind of go out the window, because, and it could be, because, you know, in six months from now, if we're dealing with Sigma, you know, Sigma, in, that's not the next in the Greek, Greek alphabet, but I can't remember the next in the Greek alphabet, but Sigma's down there somewhere. Anyway, uh, if we're dealing with that, then, then maybe so, but I don't think that's at all the intention of Quebec. I think it's, it's, it's intervening right now. We need a, a stronger global strategy, and I think rather than chasing the unvaccinated around, we need to be pushing our government to deal with the big picture of this. Otherwise, we're never going to come out. And, and why do you think it, that hasn't been the focus? And that is, is it, it, not to oversimplify it, but is it because it's never been the focus? I mean, didn't we just, I, I seem to recall at the beginning of the pandemic, we, we were talking about a little story that was in the news one day that finally malaria had been, they, that malaria had been, there was a, breakthrough when it comes to malaria treatment and polio as well, which we don't talk about in Canada at all, but but things that are still issues elsewhere. Yeah, you know, we, we've taken, it's not just us, most countries, they take, we've, we've gone very nationalistic on this. Um, and, you know, there's the WHO, but they were so trashed early in the pandemic by the Trump administration and others. Um, and, and it's so much contempt and, you know, the racism towards China and being biased towards China. That, you know, the WHO was the body. But, you know, what country, what person right now in, in, you know, early 2022 is showing global leadership on this pandemic? There isn't anyone, including the United States. You know, there's no direction. And, you know, this is one of the greatest problems we have is we're not dealing uh, with the source of all of this. All right. Well, Carrie Bowman, we will leave it there for today. But thanks so much. Uh, Like you said, this just happened earlier today, but we did want to get your reaction. So thanks so much for joining us with your, your take on this. You're more than welcome. Take care. Well, this is a story that first came to light yesterday. The House of Commons Ethics Committee expected to have an emergency meeting to investigate the public health agency's decision to collect data from millions of Canadians' mobile phones without their knowledge. The aim of the data is meant to understand travel patterns during the COVID pandemic. But Ethics Committee Chair Pat Kelly, a Conservative, tells the Canadian press he's consulting members of all parties and will schedule a meeting for later in the week to look at the privacy implications. Tory MP Jean Brassard wrote to Privacy Commissioner Daniel Terrian and asked him to investigate. An official with the Public Health Agency of Canada in a statement says the agency did consult with the Office of the Privacy Commissioner. Roger Ward, the Canadian Press. Joining us now to talk more about this is Anne Kavukian, Executive Director at the Global Privacy and Security by Design Centre. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Jill. Thank you. What is your reaction to learning that travel patterns, the information about that was being collected without the knowledge of Canadians? It it is appalling. They collected information from 33 million people's cell phones, 33 million without any knowledge or consent on their part. And they did not consult with the Federal Privacy Commissioner, Daniel Terrien, as they said they did. They didn't. When you talk to his office, his office said, no, we weren't, we weren't consulted. They didn't seek our advice on this initiative. It is appalling because this is very sensitive information. You can track people's activities, comings and goings, tracking their cell phones. It is completely unacceptable. Are you surprised that they did this or that they they seem to feel not only that it was okay, but they want to keep doing it? 
Oh, it, it is beyond surprising. As I said, the Federal Privacy Commissioner should have been consulted right at the beginning. He would have told them, you need to get the consent of the individuals involved. Uh, get, get something. This is very sensitive information. Cell phone data is very sensitive. And they didn't do that. And they said, oh, well, we're going to de-identify it. We're going to anonymize it. That's nonsense. There's no easy way to de-identify data. It's not just taking the name off. That You have to use strong de-identification protocols combined with a risk of re-identification framework. They haven't done any of that. It is just a scam what they're doing. And, and so when you say that, too, because I think that was one of the questions uh, of people saying, well, is it that much uh, of an invasion of privacy if they're not linking a name or a profile to it? Oh, but the ease with which you can link a name to the cell phone and then track someone's activities. I mean, cell phone data is extremely sensitive because it, you can engage in a great deal of surveillance by tracking someone, their whereabouts, where they've been, who, with whom they've been talking, etc. And None of that has happened in terms of strong de-identification protocols. They haven't done a risk of re-identification. Nothing. And they did all of this without telling anyone as well. It was just quietly done, you know, behind the scenes. And then somehow someone found out, thank goodness. And now the ethics committee is doing a strong probe of this. But this is completely unwarranted and for people to find out like this. And then they said, oh, well, if people want to opt out, they can. How are they going to opt out? They don't know you're doing it. Yeah. How would they even be able to do this? Is it a case of we're not reading the fine print when we're getting mobile phones? Or would they not have to get access from whoever your your provider is, whatever your cell phone is with? Yes. Well, that's the other thing. I'm urging people who have an iPhone or an Android, go to Apple, go to Google and say, I never want anyone to be able to access my phone in this manner. What is it that enables them to do that? And how can I prevent that in the future? I encourage everyone to do this. Is that something that that could work, though? Because I guess that was my big question was even how were they even able to do this? How was was our the public health agency able to find a, a third party that was able to give them all of this information? And that's a very, very good question, Jill. It's just not enough. We need more information on all of this. And it was just an accident that um, uh, John Brassard happened to find out about this and got very alarmed, rightfully so, and then said, okay, we've got to do something. And he's going to the ethics committee. And then, you know, he contacted the privacy commissioner's office and Commissioner Therrien said, no, we were not consulted with this. Can you imagine doing this? 33 million Canadians cell phones. And you didn't obtain consent or go to the privacy commissioner or anything like that. You just tracked it. And one of the... <sighs> the um, the, the what's come of this, or from what I understand, too. So at this point, there are no legal restrictions on a company handing over this information to government or in this case to the public health agency as long as, long as it's anonymous, as long oh. as there aren't names, uh, that, I, that there's nothing. So do we need more legal restrictions? Do we need something to stop this, do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. This should never happen again. The Federal Privacy Commissioner, Commissioner Terrien, has been talking about how we need to upgrade our privacy laws. They're dated from the early 2000s. We need to strengthen them. He's absolutely right. Because if this kind of activity could take place without basically anyone knowing about it, I mean, I, I, I can't even, I gag at the thought of that.
Does it show too? So are we in a place where we are too exposed as far as the fact that there are 33 million cell phones to track and to monitor in this country? Are are we too much, uh, too, I I guess, not forgiving, but are we too comfortable with carrying this thing and not realizing just how much information can be gathered on us without us knowing? Jill, I think more than comfortable, it's just that it's the reality. Everybody has a cell phone pretty much. And we're glued to it. I know I'm glued to my cell phone. And so people, it never occurs to anyone that someone could access their cell phone and surveil them. You know, their comings and goings, their movements. I think it's just shocking to people. I've been just mentioning this to a few people, colleagues, and they're, they, they cannot believe this is even possible. And without the privacy commissioner being consulted or anything. That's why I think the government, this this uh, PHAC, put the... Um, or is it the health and public health information agency of Canada? What were they thinking that they didn't go and consult with the privacy commission? They thought this was just an okay thing to do. That's what strikes me as so outrageous. The government would do this. There's a piece in the National Post about this as well, and it talks about the fact that the public health agency obtained some of the information through the TELUS Data for Good program. And that was a program that was actually launched in response to the emergence of the virus actually won a privacy award, according to this article, because it provides that de-identified aggregate data to governments, health authorities and researchers. I mean, to me, that seems like we're going in the wrong direction. Well, and TELUS has very strong privacy practices. I don't want to suggest otherwise. But I think they just probably weren't aware of the fact of how egregious this is and how you can't just access 33 million people's cell phones without their knowledge or consent. Uh, it, it is completely unacceptable. Does it, where would the information go? Like you said, if it's, if it's easy then to identify, even though it's de-identified information, the, the question being, or the, one of the concerns being, well, what if that changed and it was identified? Uh, yes. Is there a concern to, I mean, where, where this information might end up that, that the public health yes. agency now knows every step I took, every province yes. I set foot in, everywhere I went? Well, exactly. And that's the surveillance aspect of it that is so egregious. Um, they could, you know, find out uh, people of, of significance that they want to track. And, oh, why were they in this place at this time speaking with so-and-so? Um, you could engage in a great deal of surveillance using this data. Uh, from what I understand as well, this was a, a three-year contract, or it's a contract that the public public health agency, uh, this particular contract ends next year in 2023, but there is this option to renew for another three years. I'm hoping or guessing that will be part of this emergency meeting. Um, what would you yes. like to see happen? I, I would not want a repeat of this uh, at all. I don't know what they're getting from this, uh, putting people's information at risk, potentially surveillance. These are people's very sensitive cell phone data. Uh, No one should have access to this without someone's uh, consent. And I think it's completely unacceptable. So I sincerely hope that this does not continue for another three years. I hope it does not get renewed. Is the only way then at this point, other than these types of things coming to light and being discovered, I mean, it almost seems like the only way to completely avoid something like this is to not have a cell phone. Okay, but Jill, the reality is in this day and age, you know, everyone is glued to their cell phone. At least I am. Forgive me. I mean, I use it all the time uh, for not just phones, obviously, for tracking and activating and emails. And uh, The reality is people live with their cell phones. And so what we have to do is insist upon no tracking of our cell phones without our consent. 
It's that simple. And that's why I'm urging people to go to their carriers, Apple, Google, uh, Alphabet, whoever, and just say, make sure no one can track me. This is completely unacceptable that anyone else could access my data. Is it as simple as doing that? By doing that, do you actually safeguard your information? It's, well, it's just one of the ways. I mean, obviously, the government shouldn't be doing this. And that's why there's such an uproar now, uh, both in the Globe and Mail, the National Post and others. And people are very upset about this, rightly so. So my hope is that the government will be a little more transparent. There's no transparency associated with this. They just happen to find out about it um, almost by accident. In fact, in the, in the National Post, uh, they said that this agency, the public health agency, uh, was using the data, quote, without telling anybody, end of quote. Can you imagine? This is the government. What happens to openness and transparency? Are there other countries that you know of that do this? Uh, maybe China. I'm sure China does it. Right. <laughs> Not really the, the benchmark of where we want to, to put our privacy laws. Exactly. Exactly. We do not want to become like that. We have to stop this. All right. Well, and thank you so much for joining us and talking more about this. I know we're going to be hearing more about this in the days to come. But uh, and just before I let you go, so aside from, like you said, reaching out to your carrier saying, I don't want my information tracked. Is there anything else or any advice you give to Canadians on how to keep their privacy protected? I was going to say on this issue, write, write to the email, the federal privacy commissioner in Canada and tell them how much you object to this. It'll just take two minutes, send them an email. It, it, we have to let we have to let these people know how much we object to these activities without our knowledge or consent. All right, and again, thank you so much. We'll leave it there, but thanks for your time today. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure as always, Jill. Thank you. Right now, though, we are taking a look at a decision that came out of BC Supreme Court, and a BC Supreme Court justice has rejected a petition. This was a petition that was brought forward from two First Nations asking for an injunction to force the restoration of the natural flows of the Nechaco River, a river that has been diverted for about seven decades. So to find out a bit more about what was behind the petition and what this decision means for that part of the province. We are joined by Chief Priscilla Mueller, Chief of the Seku's First Nation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for um, inviting me to join you. Well, I appreciate your time so much, and I know that it's a a complicated case, and uh, to break it down in in just a few minutes is probably going to be difficult, but uh, can you talk a little bit about these petitions and what was at the heart of the petition? Well, our you know our main goal was to um, restore the Nechaco River. You know, it took uh, 50, 60 years to damage this river, um, and we our main concern was to restore it back to its natural state, or as as close as we could get to the natural state. And um, we were, you know, really hoping that um, uh, that the uh, Judge Kent was gonna Justice Kent would, uh, you know. Um, be, um, you know, that it would have been in favor, in our favor, that uh, this would have happened um, on Friday. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that was our main concern: was to restore the river to its natural state or as much po- as, as possible. And this is something then for the history. If people aren't familiar with that area, the we're talking about the the Kenny Dam, which was completed, I believe, in the nineteen fifties, that diverted the water uh, to uh, to the power smelter. How has the area changed? Do you think since the fifties or since that dam was completed? 
So, you know, years ago, like um, before the dam was built, uh, we uh, we had fishing stations all along the river. Our community, Stalaco, Notley, we all had fishing stations. We used to fish uh, for salmon, lots of, there was lots of sockeye salmon, sturgeon. You know, it was literally our food source. And uh, it's declined, like, we don't even fish anymore. Um, once in a while, um, we don't even uh, fish for sturgeon because it's almost extinct. Salmon, we don't fish for salmon for, I don't know, we probably haven't fished for maybe um, five years or so because it's, um, there's nothing hardly left. So, And this was our way of life, you know, for many generations. Is it is it upsetting then as far as the, the ruling that you mentioned the justice in this case? So Justice Nigel Kent in that written decision on Friday, uh, rejecting the petitions, but also acknowledging, I think he said in that decision as well, he, he said or he acknowledged that the operation of the dam and the reservoir has caused or contributed to substantial decline in local sturgeon and salmon populations. So uh, what is your reaction when you hear that on the one hand, clearly the justice hearing this case is aware of this, but also uh, didn't rule in your favor. Well, we you know we are de- definitely pleased that you know um, he they stated so clearly that the Kenny Dam has fundamentally affected our e- ecological you know integrity of the Nechako River, um, and uh, he did they took into the account of you know the importance of the the fish um, to our communities. And, but I think um, Canada definitely, you know, and we've been, we've been saying this right from the beginning that Canada and BC need to play a part in this because they were back in the day. It was Canada, BC, and Alcan. There was no First Nations at the table at the time when they were making all these decisions. And um, if 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 we were there 50 years ago, this wouldn't be happening today. And uh, all we want is to have a say in the in the management of the flows. And uh, we want um, some restoration to the to the river, and uh, this is where we're going to be putting pressure on Canada to come in to uh, support the First Nations, and um, you know definitely be sitting down with Rio Tinto Alcan, and uh, we are um, slowly building a relationship with them. And uh, I just I believe that uh, you know it's it's we just need to find some um, solutions moving forward. And how would you say, or how is your relationship, or how is the the First Nations relationship right now with Rio Tinto? We've never had a relationship with Rio Tinto Alcan. Um, we have been building it over the last year and a half, and um, I think it's a positive a positive step forward. So, um, and we still are working at it, and I don't think it's it's not too late to build a relationship. Uh, the the judge again. Justice Nigel Kent saying that the, the company in the ruling, he, he said that Rio Tinto Alcan has strictly complied with all of the terms of its water license and any of those related contracts with the Crown. Uh, so it's not obligated to change how it manages the river, how it manages uh, that part of the Nechaco River. So does that kind of shift the argument to the Crown and on how the Crown is involved in this? Definitely, yes. Like I said, we are going to be putting, um, you know, more pressure on the Crown. Um, like I said, you know, the First Nations were not involved from the beginning. And uh, we wouldn't have, this court case wouldn't have happened if we were involved and we had a say. And uh, definitely looking forward to sitting down with Canada. We have had, um, you know, a, a couple of sit-downs. And, uh, and, and in, new, in this new year, we knew that we were going to have more sit-downs with Canada. And um, 
Okay. Sorry. No, 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 I'm just wondering then, then it's, it almost sounds like even though this ruling then didn't go in your favor or in the favor of, of either of the First Nations behind the petition, is there room now or do you think that there's the possibility now of the parties involved, including the First Nations, can sit down or can find some common ground? I do believe that. You know, like we, we did sign that MOU with the regional district of Buckley and Chaco and, uh, and uh, they're in support of um, what we were doing here, you know, because everyone, uh, their big, biggest concern is, is the, the um, you know, the health of the river. And uh, so we've got uh, the Nachaco Buckley Regional District of Nachaco um, behind us. And, uh, you know, we've sat down with BC. We've been sitting down with Rio Tinto Alcan. And uh, I do believe we could come together to come to look for some solutions to this um, it's a huge problem and it's only going to get worse and we want to leave something a legacy and we want to leave you know a healthy river for the for in 50 years when my grand my kids are having grandkids and they're having children do you think that it it is possible or how big of a project do you think that would be given that this is something the nacheco river at that spot has been diverted for what is it 70 years how much how how do you even begin at that at this point to to kind of fix that? I I do believe there are um, some solutions there. Uh, we just need to get on the right page. Um, we need all of us need to get on the same page um, to look at what are those um, you know the solutions to the issues. And I like I said, it's going to take another probably fifty years to you know restore it, and it may not fully be restored. But if we could get you know, get it healthy again. Um, I believe we could do it. I really do. We could um, do it. And in the ruling too, and you kind of touched on this, but in that ruling too, uh, the judge said that even though that decision is is not in favor of the First Nations behind the petition, the quote is I'm looking at it says they may well be entitled to substantial compensation for the historic harm caused to their Aboriginal interests. But then he went on to say, but that claim hadn't been made against the Crown. So does that kind of leave the door open again to more compensation in the future? I do. I do believe it does leave it open. Um, right now, we haven't really um, sat down. We've had a really short meeting with our legal team on Friday. We will be sitting down with them next week to see how are we going to move forward with this whole thing. So, so as far as next steps, then is it too early to say exactly what what the next step is going to be? Yes, it is. Yeah, I'm sorry. We don't. I don't have an answer to that yet. No, that's okay. But safe to say that even with this ruling, that's this is not the end of it. The 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 trying to to get this back and to to get sturgeon and salmon back on the Nachaco is going to that effort is going to continue. It is going to continue. We are not going to stop here. All right, Chief Priscilla Mueller, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for being available and for talking to us about this. I appreciate you me calling you inviting me on today. Thank you so much. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.